so often what we have done has been done with all good intentions. It's totally understandable why a parent may want their child not to engage in behaviors that look different or that are attention getting in public or that may be stigmatizing for a child. But the bottom line is, what are we communicating to a child if we're always saying, stop that, don't do that, always correcting? And so there's a lot of attention now being paid to the impact of what we do on a child and eventually an adult self-esteem. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and today's episode features a powerful and thoughtful conversation with Dr. Barry Prezant, one of the world's leading authorities on autism. Barry is recognized as an innovator of respectful, person, and family-centered approaches for individuals with autism and neurodevelopmental disabilities. He has more than 40 years of experience as a scholar, researcher, and international consultant, and he's an adjunct professor at Brown University a speech-language pathologist, and director of Child Communication Services, a private practice. He's also the author of the must-read book, Uniquely Human, A Different Way of Seeing Autism, which suggests a major shift in our understanding of autism. Instead of classifying autistic behaviors as signs of pathology, he sees them as part of a range of strategies to cope with a world that feels chaotic and overwhelming. And as you listen to our conversation, you'll know exactly why I was so excited to bring Barry onto the show. He is at the forefront of the revolution and helping to change the way neurodiversity is perceived in the world. And frankly, I'm just so grateful there are people like Barry in the world doing this critical work. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Barry. Hey, Barry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Debbie. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation and just getting a chance to talk with you about your work, your incredible body of work, and you've been doing this work for so many years. And I really want to learn more and introduce our listeners to your book, Uniquely Human, in case that hasn't been on their radar yet. But before we get started into the meat of our conversation, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, just your story I'm fascinated by, you know, how you came to do this work and how long you've been doing it. Yeah, well, my, my story goes way back and I, and I love to share um, kind of the early roots because sometimes younger professionals or even people who do not work in the field of supporting and understanding people with disabilities that sometimes very early experiences are so formative. Um, so I actually started as a teenager uh, working in summer camps in residential summer camps, mostly in the Northeast. And these were summer camps for children and adults with various labeled disabilities, ranging from autism to emotional behavioral disorders to learning disabilities to what we now refer to as intellectual disabilities. And those experiences were so important for me because I was a caregiver living with people And I was responsible for their welfare, for making sure they had a good time and that they were safe. So from very early on, I had the experience of what many families, as they often say, live 24-7. And that was before I got into academia. Um, So I was doing that for a number of years. And then I was academically in college, I was very interested in language and language development. Actually, I was a failed German major and then became a psycholinguistics major, which was a new field at that time. So just very quickly, 
Psycholinguistics has to do with understanding the relationships between a person's thought and how they organize their understanding of the world and how they can express that through language and other ways of communicating. So I had these two parallel tracks going on, my summer experiences, which I then supplemented with volunteer experiences while I was in college. And having that undergraduate degree in psycholinguistics and those experiences led me to the field of speech-language pathology or communication disorders, which is what I did for my master's and doctoral degree. And very early on, I became interested in autism. And we're talking about the early 1970s through the late 1970s. Uh, So I did my doctoral dissertation and my master's thesis on autism. As a matter of fact, this year, 2018, is the 40th anniversary of my completing my doctoral dissertation, Mm, which, which was looking at the language characteristics of autistic children. And very much I challenged the perception of that language was meaningful, that a particular form of language known as echolalia, or the tendency to repeat speech was just meaningless parroting and non-functional. And through video analysis, basically, I was able to demonstrate that those perceptions were all wrong. Um, and that then led to a number of publications over the, over the years on those topics. But I then pursued my journey in academia for a number of years, working in hospitals and universities. And fast forward, for the last 20 years, I've been in private practice still affiliated with the university I've been affiliated with for 25 years, Brown University. And so I get out a lot into classrooms. I spend a lot of time with families. Just yesterday, I was in a preschool consulting to a number of kids and meeting with families. Um, And I also have gotten involved on a different level with families. Um, This year, actually, in just a few weeks, we will be having our 22nd annual parent retreat weekend. Um, where we raise money and we take 60 parents who happen to have family members with autism to a beautiful country setting and have them learn from each other. I get a great opportunity to learn from watching and listening to these parents. So another big piece of the work that I really value is work with families and supporting families. Uh, One other element I should add is that uh, I'm a, a drummer and a performing percussionist. I play in a band. And I've always been interested in the creative and performing arts and how that can be used for people with disabilities to enhance quality of life, but even more specifically, to enhance language and communication skills and self-esteem. So I'm involved in all of those areas right now to varying degrees. That's fantastic. I mean, I can, first of all, that you've been doing this work for so long, I can only imagine how much the landscape for the conversation around autism and what we know and are continuing to learn. Like you've witnessed all of that and been on the forefront of, of a lot of it as well. And I can hear in your voice and it certainly comes through in your book, Uniquely Human, just how passionate you are about this. You know, I can hear joy in your voice as you talk about your work. It's really cool. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's something I really try to get across. And now in my kind of more senior years in my career, I think it's important, you know, to get across to um, younger people who potentially could come into the field or who are already interested in coming into whatever it may be, speech language pathology, special education, social work, any kind of helping fields that, you know, you're really creating a life for yourself. You're not just getting a job and getting a paycheck. And the one thing that's been of such great value to me is 
the work that I do has enhanced my personal life in so many ways. Being the most incredible people, you know, some of my close friends now are adults on the spectrum, including families who have family members on the spectrum. And it, it spills over into my personal life. It's not that I'm doing it with my professional hat on. It's just I've met the most wonderful people who outside of, if you will, consulting to their child or consulting to a school program, I just have become wonderful friends and I've learned so much through this experience. So it, it, it really, for me, has broken down the boundaries between your so-called vocation and what you do outside of your work. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that's what I wish for really everyone, right? If we could all have that blending of our personal interests and our passion and our work combined like that. It, I think that's when the best stuff happens, you know, and, and we can really be in a place of joy as we're moving through our yes. lives. And, and I think it, it's uh, younger people are much more capable of doing this now. Um, for, let me just give you a quick example. Um, I'm affiliated with the group at Brown University that's called Artists and Sciences as Partners. And there's a, a two-semester undergraduate class, and I do a little bit of teaching in that class. And these students are amazing. You know, so when I ask them, well, what are your interests? What do you do? A student will say something like, well, um, I'm in cognitive neuroscience and I'm a ballerina. Okay? <laughs> and then somebody else will say, well, I'm a concert pianist and I'm pre-med. And, and so right now, universities are allowing for that kind of bringing together interests with vocational interests with your personal talents and interests. And I think relating to supporting people with disabilities, some of the most exciting work that I see now, which is also more accepted now than ever before, is, for example, the use of theater with students with autism. And not just as a therapy, not just like theater or music, drama therapy or music therapy, but to enhance quality of life, which has therapeutic benefits for so many people. Right, right. Well, let's dive into your book, Uniquely Human, because there's so many, I have a lot of things I want to get through and we'll just do the best we can. But for listeners who haven't read the book and aren't familiar with it, can you tell us the big idea behind the book? Yeah. First of all, it's important for me to make it clear that it's a mainstream book. It is not a technical book or an academically oriented book. Yeah. I've published book, books of that nature. Okay. But the big idea behind Uniquely Human is that we've really misunderstood the experience of autism for many, many years. Even though people on the autism spectrum have been telling us what their lives are like, we come out of decades of what I refer to as pathologizing autism, looking through the lens of deficit, looking through the lens of what is wrong here. And so the big idea of Uniquely Human, and it's right in the title, Uniquely Human, A Different Way of Seeing Autism, is understanding people who happen to have a label of autism as evolving human beings who have their strengths, have their passions. In the book, after following um, a term coined actually by a, a, a woman uh, named Clara Claiborne Park, she used the term enthusiasms, that my child did not have obsessions, my child had enthusiasms. Mm -hmm. So really looking, and it's not just kind of Pollyannish looking at the cup half full, it's meaningful to have a different window and a different perspective into understanding the experience of autism. So a couple of the more specific things that I really try to get to in the book is, number one, autism is not a tragedy. 
Um, for some reason, people, you know, a parent will say, I have an autistic child. Oh my God, it must be such a terrible experience. You must be such a patient parent. And yet so many parents talk equally as much about the joys and how much they've learned and how they've lived life more deep. Um, the notion that when we see a person with autism, they have all these autistic behaviors, jumping, flapping, rocking, echolalia, repeating speech, and all of that needs to be stripped away because our goal is to normalize the child. And so that also is, is I have a whole chapter on talking about language characteristics and how we have to put those misconceptions to rest, that there's no such thing as autistic behavior. We have to understand the reason or the purpose. And when we understand the reason or the purpose, it's not so different from the way we behave and what we do as so-called typical people. Um, I also try to go right at the notion of high-functioning versus low-functioning autism, because sometimes we cast in concrete our perceptions of a person, which really limits possibilities for them, and that there is no such thing. No human being could be talked could be spoken about as high functioning or low functioning. All of us are very good at some things and not so good at other things. Mm. And a couple of other quick points as part of the big message is that the best way to understand autism is to listen to autistic people, listen to what they have to say, learn from what they have to say. And that's a huge difference, of course, between now and 20 years ago. 20 years ago, the only voice was Temple Grandin. And now we have hundreds, if not thousands of autistic people who are giving lectures, writing books, and they're, they're telling us what we've gotten wrong as professionals all these years. And then finally, I really try to get across the point that autism isn't something that's in a person. Autism is a shared human experience. When I am with a person with autism, I need to change the way I talk, the way I react if I want to have a successful time with that person in many cases. And it's also a shared human experience in that I've become a better person by knowing people with autism. Um, as long as we view autism as a condition within a person, and if you don't like what you see, then that gives license to people to try to change and fix the person without taking the personal responsibility as a professional or as a parent. How do I need to change to best develop a trusting relationship and therefore be best able to support this person well? Right. Yes, it is a packed book. And, you know, everything that you're saying and uh, listeners, I, if you've been listening to Tilt Podcast, then you know this is in complete alignment with the way that I see neurodiversity, that it is, it's not a deficit. And it's, I do see it as part of an evolution and that we need to change the way we see it. And it, it's so beautifully laid out in, in this book. And I'm curious to know, I mean, I would think some of these concepts when the book came out were really breakthrough, you know, what was the reception like when it first came out? Yeah. Well, so I would say some of the concepts were breakthrough, but some of the concepts are also kind of consistent with and building on what I refer to as the autism revolution, this kind of tsunami, this wave of change as clearly indicated in Steve Silberman's incredible book, Neurotribes, in, in, in so many different ways now. So I see, I see the book as part of a movement, and certainly what autistic people are telling us. It's a very, very big part of that as well. So uh, yeah, the, the initial reaction to the book, um, and if anybody wants to see detailed reactions directly from people, they can go to the Amazon page you know, from Uniquely Human. What's been so gratifying is the breadth of interest and positive response. Parents of newly diagnosed kids, 
parents of adult individuals on the autism spectrum have said, oh my God, this is so consistent. Thank you for validating the way I've always seen my child. Or you've set me on a new path. I've, I've changed the way I interact with and respond to my child now. Researchers, some of the top researchers in the field of autism, um, Dr. Geraldine Dawson, who's the director of Duke University Department of Brain Science and Autism Studies. I'm just one example. And she's, she's also the director of the International Association for Autism Research. So many people in academia have loved the book. And then what's so important to me, in addition to parents connecting with the book, is autistic people. Yeah. So, so many autistic people have either commented or actually written formal reviews and have said, Barry, thank you. What you described is something that I've experienced in my life as an autistic person. And thank you for saying that. As a matter of fact, one review from a wonderful woman named Judy Endow, who has a blog, and that's E-N-D-O-W, she wrote a review of my book with Steve's book together. It was called Uniquely Human Neurotribes. <laughs> that was the name. And, and she said about both of us, thank you for writing these books. Would I have preferred that an autistic person authored these books? Yes. But you guys have really stood up for what our experience really is and take the message forward and join with us. And that's, that's very valuable. So validating. We'll be right back after this quick break. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites, turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60TILT at greenchef.com slash 60TILT. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. 
The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Yeah, I imagine that's got to be incredibly gratifying. And what I, you know, there are many things that I love about the book, but it is such a respectful approach to seeing difference. And I love, you know, there's so many stories of your work over the years with such a range of families and kids and, you know, respect is kind of this common theme throughout. And I think that's so important for everyone to keep in mind to talk about this kind of fixing behaviors and that kind of thing. And, and, that's not an even playing field, you know, but the way that you are meeting people halfway and trying to encourage people to look at this as communication, it is just such a positive, respectful approach. Yeah. And, and you know, one point I really tried to get across is that, you know, whether it be a parent or a teacher or a therapist, so often what we have done has been done with all good intentions. It's totally understandable why a parent may want their child not to engage in behaviors that look different, or that are attention getting in public, or that may be stigmatizing for a child. But the bottom line is, what are we communicating to a child if we're always saying, stop that, don't do that, always correcting? And so there's a lot of attention now being paid to the impact of what we do on a child and eventually an adult self-esteem. How do they feel about themselves? And how could you feel good about yourself if people are always trying to change you for who you are? Absolutely. I'd love to talk about behavior a little bit. I mean, when people first, you know, a lot of our listeners, the majority of our listeners have kids, you know, who are in the early elementary school years. And we have kids with neurodifferences of all kinds, but a number who are, uh, who are on the autism spectrum. And they're just getting that information and they might just be starting to get feedback or suggestions about different types of therapy and what are the priorities. And, and also, as you know, with, with younger kids in those early school years, it is often the behavior that's the first thing that we want to work on because it can be so disruptive in a traditional school setting. So can you talk a little bit about how behavior has been for so many years been like the target of our efforts and what your perspective is on it? Yeah, especially in autism, but this has occurred with other kids with different kind of labeled disabilities, especially in the United States. Approaches a number of years, going back to the 60s and 70s, were about, well, let's make lists of desirable behaviors the child demonstrates, and let's build upon those, and let's look at the undesirable behaviors and get rid of those, okay? Um, And of course, as you said, What is often attention-getting is behavior that may be harmful to others or harmful to the child, may be disruptive in the environment, may be distracting to other people, may be unconventional, looking very different, so that child doesn't look like a typical child. But what we have failed to do in the past is really look deeply, and what I refer to as the deep why. From the child's perspective, why is that child getting out of his seat in the classroom and bolting out of the classroom 
when we expect him to sit for 45 minutes and pay attention to the teacher? Is it that he's being, and this is a term that's very popular now, oppositional or non-compliant? Or is it that due to his neurology, he's incapable of sitting quietly for that period of time? So maybe that child, for example, needs more breaks, or maybe that child needs a different way of being taught rather than through lecture. Maybe that child needs more hands-on experiential learning. So a lot of the changes that have happened is we try, and it's not always easy, but we try to understand from the child's perspective and where they are developmentally, why they engage in certain patterns of behavior that we as parents and professionals may see as challenging or undesirable, as opposed to just saying, well, let's set up programs to increase behaviors and reduce behaviors which what I'm describing now is kind of more of a notion of traditional ABA or applied behavior analysis, where the focus has been traditionally going back many years on building behaviors and extinguishing or getting rid of behaviors without asking the deep why and without asking what we're doing, how does this impact that child's self-esteem and that child's growing sense of who they are as a human being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that idea of, you know, there's, Every every answer, there's so many directions I could go with it, and I have a lot more follow-up questions, but just to speak to that idea of, of looking normal, like that's something that came up with my son, who's now 13 and has a diagnosis of ADHD and Asperger's, and I don't remember who it was, but a therapist at one point made a comment about the way that when he was drawing or trying to write that he you know, the facial expressions he made and that that was something we'd also want to work on. And I was like, I'm sorry, say what? You know, what are you talking about? That is the least of my concerns. I don't care what he's doing with his face, but there was such a priority placed on fitting in and looking quote unquote normal. And that was really disturbing to me, but I, it sounds like that's, that's been the way it, it has been for many years. Absolutely. And you just raised another very important point, And that is, that part of not just the autism revolution, but the whole revolution in supporting families and children and other family members who may be adults is let's understand the family's priorities. Let's understand what their perceptions are. Now, of course, in education in the United States, you know, we have the IEP and parents supposedly, you know, have to sign off on approving the goals and objectives and the procedures that are used. But too often, that's just lip service, and professionals go about doing what they're going to do anyway. But boy, you know, unless we really view, and I'm speaking as a professional now, unless I see my relationship as collaborative and as a partnership with parents, then why do I have the right to expect parents to kind of follow up on suggestions that I make if they don't value that? Or, or, even more, if they don't value that, if they, as you just said, if they say, why would you want to work on facial expressions? How does that really, you know, stack up on the priorities I have for my son? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And one of the other things that came up as, as I was reading your book was, you know, you talked about just now desirable versus undesirable behaviors. And when Asher was in I don't remember kindergarten or first grade, but he was at a point in time where he was really, his behavior was intense and big and undesirable, you know, in a classroom, it was disruptive. There was other kids in the class who with the same kind of anxiety or frustration, it would trigger, you know, maybe falling apart into a puddle of tears and, and, you know, same trigger 
different response, but one was perceived as acceptable by society and one wasn't. And that was where the problem lied. That was really frustrating for me. And and I think one of the difficulties in that kind of situation, um, and here's how I refer to that, is too often if kids engage in behavior that people perceive as challenging to them, that sometimes becomes part of that child's quote-unquote reputation. Mm -hmm. So I've seen kids moving through the grades and you read the report and you hear terms like aggressive, non-compliant. And in some cases, and you hope this is the case, the new teacher, maybe in the new school year says, well, I don't see that. That's not happening here. And then you discover it's the lens through which the child is looked at, which leads to different ways to support the child. So if the approach initially is let's just correct the behavior, you actually may get more pushback from the child. Whereas if the approach is we have to develop this trusting relationship, a bottom line, then that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know that there is research backing that idea up that teachers treat kids differently depending on what they're told the child's gifts or talents or challenges are. That's right. So one of the things that you say in the book, you said that our attitudes and perspective on people with autism can make a critical difference in their lives. Tell me why, why that is. What difference does have you seen it make in the lives of autistic people? Well, well, to be specific, sometimes I still run into therapists and teachers whose attitude is, um, for example, if a child is not cooperating, I hear phrases like, well, he's just trying to get out of this, you know, or this is, he's just being non-compliant. And so again, as I just indicated, if you always look through that lens, then what's your goal? To break the non-compliance, to get the child to be compliant? As opposed to saying, and this is something I like to say often, well, there could be anywhere between eight or 10 different reasons why a person is non-compliant, any person. If they're asked to do something, they don't do it. It could be they don't understand what you're saying. It could be They've had negative experiences doing that before, and it's stressful for them. It could be they're just not interested in doing that. There could be many different reasons. So our attitude shapes the way we try to come up with an explanation as to why a student may be challenging, which leads to very, very different approaches. And it's interesting, a a dear friend of mine who's been one of the leaders in the Asperger's movement, Michael John Carley. Um, and he's written a few books, and he's founded uh, an international organization called GRASP. Um, I quote Michael in the book a number of times, and um, one of my favorite quotes from Michael is, if you want an autistic person to change, the best way to facilitate that positive change is to change what you are doing, is to change your attitudes and change your beliefs. But I think too often we look at autistic people and describe any problems we see as kind of willful non-cooperation or laziness or whatever, as opposed to saying, what are we doing wrong? Can we teach this differently? Can we even use language differently, simplify our language? Maybe if a child is very hypersensitive to the word no, because they associate that with a stressful circumstance, We can guide a child and even correct the child without using the word no, if that's a trigger for that child. Certainly everything from our facial expression to our tone of voice to do we use visual supports to help a child who has limited understanding of language. 
what underlies all of this is our attitude. What are the types and levels of support that a person needs to succeed as opposed to how can I get this child to do this, what I want them to do? We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. And that's a big reframe, right? That teachers and parents and, you know, we all have to face at some point if we're educating our parenting or interacting with, with autistic kids is shifting. Because I, I feel like the message, if we don't do the work, right, if we're not reading your book, if we're not exploring this deeper, the messages that we're, that are kind of prevalent in society are that it's a behavioral problem and, you know, there's this way to approach it. And so it does take some diving a little deeper and some coming to this new lens to see these kids. Yeah, and it, and it really is a new lens in a very concrete way. So, for example, I mean, autism used to be defined, as some people still describe it as a behavior disorder. It is not a behavior disorder. It's a neurologically based developmental learning difference. Learning disability depends upon where you are politically and using those terms. But in my consulting, I'll often be in a situation where somebody will say, oh, you know, he's just being so oppositional, or he's just being so resistant, or he does that to push my buttons. And I always go back to, and I try to do it in a very, very non-confrontational way, but I may say to that teacher or therapist who says that, okay, let's start from this fact. The fact is this child has a neurologically based brain difference in how he processes and understands the world. That we know, okay? 
when you're saying he's being manipulative or he's just trying to get out of this task, those are your assumptions. You can't go into his mind and understand what his motive is. But what we do know is he has neurological differences that result in the way, differences in the way he responds as opposed to a so-called typically developing child. As you're sharing that, there's a story that I share in my book, Differently Wired, where I, you know, I think Asher was maybe seven or eight and he was being, to use, you know, the word oppositional or overly non-compliant in a lot of areas. And I was talking with his therapist after a session, Dr. John, and, and I said, I'm really just having a hard time knowing, you know, what is a choice here? What's a behavior? And what is because of his wiring? And he just looked at me. He's like, Debbie, he's, he's always autistic. Like that's always the lens that you're going to see this through. It's, he's not turning it on and off. There's always a reason why. And I just had to, you know, head smack, you know, like, oh uh, yeah. Okay. Got it. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, uh, uh, people, parents very often ask me, for example, around the three-year-old child, okay, is this three-year-old behavior or is this the autism I'm seeing now? But then I hear that about teenagers and the yep. pre-pubertal years moving through <laughs> puberty. Okay, is this just early teenage behavior <laughs> or is this the autism? And I'm a developmentalist, meaning that all of my training is in social language, cognitive and emotional development in children. So what I, the way I like to say it is, I will always look at a child through the lens of development and where they are developmentally, but then with a deep understanding of how their autism or how their neurological difference may color or shape, or in some cases, offer challenges to their developmental experiences as an evolving human being. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, lots of neurotypical kids are extremely difficult moving into the puberty years, but... As we know, it could be a very difficult time for many kids who have a label on the autism spectrum, which kind of exacerbates or colors that experience even more. But uh, I think some of the problems that I see in, in programs for individuals with autism, actually with disabilities in general, is developmentally inappropriate programming. So a child who may speak, a very young child, doesn't have to even be a young child, but may speak in one or two word what we call utterances or phrases. And everybody's always saying, say the whole sentence, say, I want a big chocolate cookie, please. And the child goes, cookie, cookie, want cookie. In our approach, we value that the child is initiating and being spontaneous and clearly indicating their needs. And we're not so concerned at that developmental point about, is he saying a grammatical sentence? Um, but that, that plays out in a lot of different ways. A child is only able to sit for 15 to 20 minutes at a time in a classroom and have a quiet body, we have no right to ask that child to sit for 30 to 45 minutes if their neurology does not allow them to do that. Amen. Yes, absolutely. So, oh goodness. Okay. There's so many things that I want to ask you, but I'm going to, I'm going to try to wrap this up. But before I want to hear about what else is coming up for you, but before I do that, I had one more question. I just wanted to talk about this idea of emotion regulation and trust and anxiety. I really liked the way you talked about trust being such an important part for these kids and that it, you described that as the opposite of anxiety. And it reminded me a bit of the work of Danny Reed from Asperger Expert. Yep. When I first discovered his work and just like helped me 
look at Astro through that lens of, you know, getting out of defense mode and not being in fight or flight. So this all kind of connected for me, but the word trust hadn't ever been part of the way that I thought about what was really going on. So can you talk about the role of trust and emotional regulation? Uh, Yeah, let me give credit what credit's due. Uh, The whole notion of trust actually came out of some of the work of Michael John Carley, who I just mentioned. And he and I actually published a two-part article, which is a free download on my website, about uh, the, the primacy of trust, the importance of trust in getting to know and developing a relationship. Um, with a person on the spectrum. Now, let's just very quickly talk historically. For many decades, people didn't even think you could even develop a relationship because these were kids who were incapable of developing relationships. That's another myth that we've pretty much thrown away. But the whole whole notion of of trust comes out of what's referred to as relationship-based approaches. And our CERTS model is a relationship-based approach. And basically what we're saying is if a child or an adult does not see us as a parent or professional as dependable, as somebody they could rely on, as somebody who could read their communicative signals, as somebody who knows how to help them regulate emotionally and physiologically when they're experiencing what we refer to as dysregulation, whether they're anxious, whether they're fearful, whether they're just so revved up in a high arousal state that they can't even control themselves. So the whole notion of trust, and I, you know, I always like to bring this back to all of our experiences with people in our lives. There are certain people who we know we can go to if we're feeling very stressed and very challenged in our lives. Um, and those people are reliable, dependable, they're good listeners, they know what to do or say to help us. There are people we know we want to avoid in those circumstances. So why is it that we don't think those same kind of rules, if you will, are not applicable to people with autism or disabilities. And that trust piece has been ignored for so many years. And if that trust is developed, if, if a child I'm working with sees me as reliable, dependable, I know when they need a break, so I'll give them a break rather than forcing them to sit for another 15 minutes. I know if they need a little extra support, I'll do that. But trust goes the other way. I know when they're doing really well and they're really motivated, I'm going to raise the bar for them a little bit so they can succeed and feel good about meeting new challenges. And so why would a child want to risk, if you will, taking on a difficult task unless they're with a person who they know is dependable and will help them? So that trust piece is huge. It's the basis of a relationship. And we seek out people, we're motivated by people, and we'll take more risks with people where there's a trusting relationship. And we won't do those things if a person is undependable, inconsistent, unreliable, and doesn't see us in a positive light. Yeah. I mean, I talk a lot about finding your people, how important it is for parents with differently wired kids to find their people and to kind of ditch the people who just don't get it or, you know, let that go because not everyone's going to get it. And I really love that you talk about people with the it factor in your book and you lay out these really great qualities of people who, who get it and that those are the people, you know, I talk about it from a parenting perspective. Those are the people we need in our lives, but those are the people our kids need in their lives too. Absolutely. And, and again, let's give credit where credit's due. The it factor is a construct that I learned from a mother who was attending one of my workshops in Vancouver, Canada a number of years ago. And 
you know, she brought it up in the audience and that she said, here's how my family thinks about it. And that's what the book Uniquely Human is really about. It's what I've learned from families and autistic children and autistic people. So some of the things you really connected with are actually things that I learned from Michael John Carley or this mom from Canada. And there's just so much wonderful knowledge, so many gems out there that we could all learn from. And I think those are the things that I find parents hold on to and that professionals need to hold on to rather than coming in with our own own preconceptions and our own judgments. Right. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, again, there, there are so many great stories in the book. I really connected with them and, and it also shows just the work that you've done throughout the world. You travel all over the world doing this work and, and it was very inspiring to me and optimistic and hopeful But before we go, I would love to know what is coming up for you. And then I'd also love if you could share with listeners where the best place for them to connect with you is. Sure. There's so many irons in the fire right now. Just very quickly, some of the things I'm very excited about is um, we are replicating a, a, a theater expressive arts program out of California developed by a mom, um, Elaine Hall. It's called The Miracle Project. And we're doing that at Brown University and the Rhode Island Philharmonic Orchestra School. We actually had a camp last year, and um, we're having ongoing programs in the coming year. We hope that it'll all work out well. Uh, we're continuing to do our parent retreat, as I mentioned, and uh, possibility of a, a new book that's a, a follow-up to um, Uniquely Human that's going to focus on what's important to put into the lives of people with autism that they can do or that we can do to really make sure quality of life is experienced, a positive quality of life is experienced. Um, I think a lot of people in the field of disabilities have shifted away from simply saying, let's train that person to get a job. I think now we're really looking at the whole concept of quality of life. What is a good life if you have autism? And even despite the challenges that autism may bring, you know, what is a good life for this person? How could we put those building blocks together from very, very early on and not work on things that are meaningless to a person's life? Uh, so th- those are some of the big issues. Many other irons in the fire right now, but we don't have time to get into them right now. Yeah. Well, when you have more news, you can come back on the show and, and fill us in, but everything sounds great. It sounds like you're a very busy person and I'm really grateful not just for you stopping by the podcast and talking with us today, but just for the work that you're doing in the world. You are, you know, people like you are so important to parents like me. And just knowing that you're out there fighting this fight and having such an impact is really fantastic. So thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. And let me just turn that around and say people like you are important to all of us <laughs> um, in terms of sharing information and your perspective, both about your child and also everything you've learned as a parent professional. So thank you so much. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, including links to Barry's website, his book, Uniquely Human, and all the other resources we discussed, visit tiltparenting.com slash session 99. If you like what you heard on today's episode, I would be grateful if you could take a minute to head over to iTunes and leave a rating or review for us. We are still in the top 20 in kids and family category for new and noteworthy. And honestly, it is just 
been so exciting to see this audience grow and the podcast get more attention. Here we are at our 99th episode, which is a little mind blowing. And also having those ratings and reviews makes it a lot easier for me to land bigger guests like Dr. Prasant. So it's a win-win. Thank you so much for being a part of making this happen. Lastly, if you aren't already part of the online community at Tilt, I invite you to sign up at TiltParenting.com. Every Thursday, I send out a short email with a quick note from me, a link to that week's podcast episode, and links to five stories from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. And thanks again for listening. For more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.TiltParenting.com. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.